Awesome, guys. Thanks, band. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. As Leah said earlier, I uh, want to welcome you as well as one of the pastors here. Thanks for uh, attending. If it's your first time here, maybe second or third, thanks for uh, coming back or for checking us out for the first time today. We are in a series right now in the book of Acts, as Peter said, and we're going to finish this book today. Uh, so if you want to turn there to Acts chapter 28, verses 17 and following, in a Bible or phone app you've got, feel free to do that. But this will all be on screen here, too, uh, kind of in three incremental sections here uh, as we go to. So if you want to follow along that way, that's totally fine uh, as well. Uh, so we um, I always have some mixed feelings ending a series like this. Like, um, I'm going to miss it. Uh, and I hope it's been a fun series for you guys if you've been here, if you've been just part of this. Uh, it's a really great book of the Bible that I, I think... Um, isn't often read. I don't know if it's, that's your experience or not, but it's been part of my experience. It's kind of a unique book, and it's not something that um, I tend to go to right away when I just kind of crack my Bible open and, uh, and don't have a plan or anything, and so it's been really fun for me. I uh, learned a lot myself, and I hope you have as well, uh, but, we, but also uh, kind of excited to go on to something else, and so kind of mixed feelings. Uh, we're going to uh, do a Christmassy kind of a three-week mini-series starting next week uh, through uh, the 29th, I think, is a Sunday this year, so um, that'll be the last of those. Then some open mic-ish sermons, we call them here, uh, where it's kind of preacher's choice for a few weeks, uh, which we usually do some visioning stuff. So if you're new to our church, that'll hopefully be helpful too for you to learn more about who we are as a community and what our vision is and uh, where we're headed in the future, what God's done this past year, all that kind of good stuff. Um, and I think we're going to preach, I'm going to preach one of our core values on the Holy Spirit. So that'll be coming up uh, in the new year. Uh, and then a three-week series on Philemon which if you know anything about Philemon, it's a New Testament letter that's one chapter long. So a little bit different than Acts. Acts has been like 13 plus months, and then we're going to dive into a, a two or three week series in the book of Philemon. Uh, but it'll be kind of fun because Philemon is a book that Paul wrote in prison uh, in Rome, which we're reading about today. So what you're seeing today play out narratively. Paul's in house arrest in Rome. This is where he wrote the four what we call prison epistles of the New Testament. Uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, is that right? I think it's those four that he wrote in this uh, first uh, house arrest situation. He had two of them. The, the second one we don't know much about biblically, but historically we do. Uh, but biblically he wrote those four um, we call prison epistles. So um, in any case, uh, in terms of Acts, so uh, if we ask a question like what's significant about the end of Acts, not like the whole book because we'd be here like through lunch, but... Um, What's significant about the end of, of Acts, or even the, the end of Acts 28, because not even the whole last chapter, this is just the second half of the last chapter, um, I think there's a lot to say. It, it's the end of the book, which a lot of times narrative in the Bible, the ends of these, these stories are kind of pregnant with meaning, and they're just uh, ready for us to kind of dive into and see ourselves in the story. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Paul's in Rome, which uh, if you've been here for the series, you know this is significant. The gospel has gotten there by Jesus' bidding. So the whole book began by Jesus saying, this is going to happen. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his death and resurrection, is going to go to the ends of the earth. And this is the end of the earth. From like Jerusalem standpoint, this is the end of the earth. Kind of like the capital of the world of the day. And the gospel has gotten there by Jesus' bidding. So uh, a lot of cool stuff there. Uh, against all odds and obstacles, you know, we, we read about Paul's shipwreck a couple of weeks ago and it, it's, it took a lot to get here, but um, we'll see how the book ends here today, that really it's without hindrance the, the kingdom expands. Without hindrance, the gospel goes forth. Nothing can stop it. It's a steamroller. That's really good news for us, for the church, but for all of us, that God always accomplishes what he intends. And it also ends in a very open-ended, non-miraculous manner. 
That's really interesting uh, as well. And so we'll talk more about that later, but it ends in a very open-ended, non-miraculous manner. And I think I'll just say here, and and I'll say more uh, in, in a few minutes, but to that, I will say this is, Acts is not the biography of the Apostle Paul. That's not what the book of Acts is about. It's not a biography about the Apostle Paul. He is not the main character. If it was, it would probably end with his death. We, we would see at the very end, like Paul lived out all his days in Rome, or he got out, went to Spain, came back, was imprisoned again under Nero, and with all the persecution that happened there, mid-first century, he was, he was killed by the sword, uh, which tradition says he, he was killed, and then he died. It would kind of end with his death. But it's not about him. And so it just kind of ends in a very open-ended manner to, to, to not just suggest, but I think shout, that, that the, the point, the hero is Christ. It's about him and the expansion of his kingdom around the world. Paul is just a figure, a pawn, a player, just like us. We're a part of it, so it's exciting to see ourselves in the story, but it's ultimately not about us. It's about Christ. It's here. The story's for us, and we're in it, but it's ultimately about, about him. And so today what I want to do is talk about Paul in house arrest and basically ask the question, what did it look like? How does this house arrest challenge us and warn us and comfort us and show us Christ. I think it does all of that. Acts, the way Acts ends is very open-ended and kind of odd, actually, in some ways. Um, if you've read it before, maybe you know what I'm talking about. But um, I think it does all four of those things. Challenges us, it warns us, it comforts and consoles us, and ultimately it shows us Christ. It doesn't necessarily declare Christ explicitly, but it shows us him implicitly. And that's a very important principle to see in the Bible because um, Jesus is everywhere. Not just explicitly, but also in the shadows, in the white space, in between the lines, and suggested, in this case, through the person and work of the Apostle Paul. All right, so let's read. Acts 28, 17 to 22 is the first section. I'm going to read this in three sections today, kind of incrementally, and then we'll uh, wrap up with the last two verses and spend a little bit more of our time maybe there. There's a lot of stuff going on there. But, but before we get there, let's read from verse 17 and following. So after three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. All right, so as is so often Paul's custom, uh, if, you, if you've been here for the series, we've seen this pattern, right? Paul, a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times starts in the synagogues, or in this case, he's starting, he's in house arrest in Rome, but he's bringing the Jews, he's a Jew himself, bringing the Jews to himself first, saying uh, that, that this is the hope of Israel, that Christ is, is the, the goal of the Old Testament. He is the, the final yes to all of God's promises that he promised to us throughout biblical history, redemptive history, and to the world through us. So he's preaching first to them and then to the Gentiles because many, many times they reject him, and, and that's going to happen today as well. Most of these Jews aren't going to listen to him. They're going to debate amongst themselves, just kind of leave him and not consider 
uh, his teachings viable or, or truth-filled. And so we'll, we'll talk about that in the second section in, in a minute. But I thought this was a really interesting thing here. Before we get to their rejection, just to see basically what, what they're saying is, um, Paul, we'd like, to, we'd like to hear from you. So we've received no letters from Judea about you. That's the province that Jerusalem's in. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. And so that this really stuck out to me and, and struck me in, in the sense, and this is a little bit of, uh, a bit of background here, uh, I think it's helpful uh, for us when there are just so many views on so many things out there for us to consider. And you could probably say, even though I don't know if it's fair to say this, but I'll just say it, um, more than they had in that day. And so um, like they're just interested in the views of someone else, in the perspective, or in this case like the religion of someone else, or the sect of Judaism, as they're calling it, uh, that someone else is espousing, uh, we might today just be interested in that, right? And yet there's so much more out there knowledge-wise for us to kind of listen to. A lot of it might be good, a lot of it might not, or is uh, but there's just so much, so many views, to use his word, out there to consider. And so some, some background to this, um, this summer, you got, a lot of you guys know I was on sabbatical this summer uh, for three months, the end of May through the end of August, and I did a lot of podcasting, which was, which was intentional. I don't do a lot of it just like in the day-to-day because of time, but I did, a, I did a lot, some with Aletha, my wife, and some just by myself, podcasts on chess, uh, to the destructiveness of envy, to public speaking, to the history behind Pocahontas, that was kind of a fun one, um, and so on. Uh, and, and I found out uh, that there are, I was just curious because I'm scrolling through all these podcasts and I'm just like, man, there's just like literally never ending, you know. And I found out that there are more than 700,000 active podcasts today and more than 29 million active podcast episodes. Isn't that insane? <laughs> and so for me, that, that's really interesting, but also overwhelming for a guy that likes to learn. So I'm a learner, and so kind of overwhelming too. Uh, to, hear, uh, to hear that number. And so this then led to thinking more broadly about information and knowledge itself and how much there is to know and how much easier it is to learn about things today and have our questions answered. Like if you're in a group and you don't know the answer to something, you might just Google it, right? And figure it out right there or just inquire about it. And again, that then led to feelings of, and this is the bigger question I want to get to, is where do I start? Where do we start? What's most important to know? That's a great question. What's the most important thing to know in the world? Or is there something? Maybe you're, maybe you're not convinced that there is, but, but is there? What if there was? Maybe think of it that way. What if there is one most important thing to know about? Or what type of knowledge is most worth our time? Because time is short, and there's no way we can, we can podcast 29 million episodes. I didn't do the math, but I'm guessing like, it's literally impossible to do that like in your lifetime. Uh, so much less remember what we heard, right? So none of this is to say that seeking knowledge outside the bullseye of theology or the gospel or the Bible is not worth our time, but it is to say we have to sort through the noise. We have to seek to know God's word better than, in my case, uh, the history of how Netflix overcame Blockbuster, which was last week for me. I listened to that one. It was super exciting. But we have to sort through this stuff. I mean, there are even um, Christian articles uh, are often titled on the internet, Nine things you need to know about this. Nine things every Christian should know about this. So things like, and these are actual articles, by the way, like nine things every Christian should know about the Supreme Court or the Taliban or cohabitation or astrology or Paula White. These are all like 
And I'm reading these titles, not that the articles themselves are, are uninteresting or unimportant, but the, the title of Nine Things Every Christian Should Know. And I'm, th- I'm thinking, should know? Like, you mean has to know? Or are you saying only ma- like mature Christians know this? Like, and so we, we, we need to delve into this stuff and we, and we should spend our time during our days like really ingesting this stuff. Like need to know, do you mean? Or just like, it'd be nice if we kind of did. Because that, that matters, right? Those are different uh, ways of going about uh, that, that kind of title. So two things just to encourage with us here. And this is a little bit of a bunny trail, but I think I've been thinking about this since the summer. Uh, and here we go. I finally got to saying this. Um, but first is the example of the Jews here. Uh, seeking the right kind of knowledge. And that's what they're doing. They're going to Paul looking for the right kind of theological knowledge. And Paul's example too here. This is the guy, Paul, who says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that fascinating? I just chose to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and not just the man Jesus, but him crucified on that cross, as if that were the most important thing. And it is. And so he writes that letter to them, expounding and kind of like branching off of that one most important thing, and how it applies to our lives. But also Jesus' example, who saw so much injustice and evil in his day, so much knowledge, you could say, to acquire and espouse, and yet he remained dialed in, focused, resolved, with his face set on Jerusalem in order to die for your and my sins. Not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave, nor succumbing to the impulse to speak to every evil under the sun, which he did not do. And sometimes as Christians, we think we need to do that, that that's what it means to be a mature Christian. Jesus didn't speak to every evil under the sun in his day. And there were many. That's the first thing, following the examples of the Jews and Paul, and even Jesus here, in seeing the the principle of focus when it comes to, to things like knowledge and information. But secondly, this is where the gospel comes in, It's not ultimately up to us to sort through the noise as if Christianity is one of 29 million things to listen to. As if you're scrolling through your phone saying, I mean, all of these are sort of equal until I decide which is the most important. That's not how we believe information has come to us, right, as Christians. Instead, like here in Acts 28, Paul calls the Jews to himself. God calls us to himself through the noise but calls us to himself as well and says to us, I am the greatest thing. Listen to me. See, God is not just a, a teacher trying to tell you what to podcast. He's saying, I am the greatest thing. I am the life. I am the door. I am the truth. Listen to me. Or like when, remember when God the Father spoke to um, the disciples on the Mount of Trans, when, when Christ was being transfigured and Moses and Elijah were there and, and remember what he says to his disciples? about Jesus, he says, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. And two weeks ago, too, when we we looked at this from Luke 10, where Jesus says to Martha, indeed, only one thing truly matters. I mean, even Jesus is teaching this. He's saying this about himself. He's the thing, but he's saying only one thing truly matters. Not that other things don't matter, but only, only one thing truly matters ultimately, at the end of the day, matters. And so for us then, we don't have to be anxious or fear missing out. 
Uh, there's lots of studies done on this stuff, how more choices leads to anxiety. Even severe cases of crippling anxiety. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the issue of having so many choices and not knowing which one's most important. Because if, if I'm listening to this, I'm not listening to that, but what if I should have been? And other people are. And they all of a sudden know more than I do because they were spending their time listening to that. It can lead to all kinds of mental disorders and anxiety and just FOMO, like fear of missing out. You know, and so we don't have to be anxious or fear missing out when it comes to knowledge. We don't have to go searching for truth because truth has found us. God has blown the haze away and says, those, some of those things might be important, but I am most important. You don't have to decide this. Now, people might not believe that's true, but that's different. Belief's a different issue. What the, the, at least we have to see here for clarity's sake that God is saying, I am the one thing that truly matters. In fact, isn't that kind of the point here to these Jews having no letters from Paul? I mean, isn't that like wonderfully indicative of our spiritual state before Jesus saves us? We have no true knowledge of God. That's you and me. We have no letters. We have no insight. We have, no, we, we have nothing from him until he comes to us. Just like until Paul went to Rome and talked to these Jews and then the Roman Gentile Christians after them and, and, and just Gentiles themselves after them and preached the gospel to them, until he went to them, they had no knowledge. That's like our story. We have no true knowledge of God. We're exiled, we're distant, we're lost. We, have, we, we, are, sim- we, we, are, um, we have no knowledge. We don't know who he is. And yet, but, but like Paul went to them, so does Jesus come to us to be known. And so that, I think, is where the gospel is in this. Is we don't, it, it saves us from crippling fear and anxiety. And, and even though there's so much that we can know, uh, Christ himself comes into it, both as an example of one who remained dialed in himself as a human being, but as God incarnate, it's not an example, it's a gospel, where he came to us and said, listen to me, I have the words of life. Believe in me and you will be saved. All right, let's read the second section now, Acts 28, 23 to 28. When they, the Jews, had appointed a day for him, Paul, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. All right, so the second section here um, is, has to do with uh, Paul's warning. And it's not what you might think. All right, so we see yet again that this has been all throughout Acts. When the gospel comes to a city or a group of people, some believe the gospel and some don't. It's pretty simple, and yet it's very profound and important for us because we're people as well, all right? But this is just what happens. Some people believe, some don't. Sides are taken, 
Some are saved and some are hardened. Some are convinced about Jesus from the Bible and some are not. Yet again, we're seeing this. It always happens this way. Uh, the principle, what, what Acts 28 is kind of saying without saying, it's saying it indirectly, is universalism is not true. It's, it's the idea that everyone is universally saved, no matter what our religion or what our philosophy or whoever we are, that God's just going to save everybody and that, that there is no hell. Uh, that's just not tenable. That's not true based off of texts like this. And this is like one of a million texts, not quite that high, but like hundreds of texts like we could look to uh, prepositionally but also narratively in the Bible where it says that doesn't fit with what's happening here. There are two sides and what we do with Jesus is, uh, is the crux. So in fact, it's interesting, I think, that this is one of the last things we see in Acts. Uh, and, and it's not, you know, Acts does not end with this kind of glorious, and Paul went to Rome and everyone believed the gospel, you know, like even the emperor believed, Caesar believed, and uh, it changed the world literally, and, and like literally no one disbelieved the gospel. Like if it ended that way, wouldn't that seem made up anyway? It seemed fake, wouldn't it? We'd probably almost just kind of throw it down and say, well, the Bible's fake. It's not real. But the Bible's real. The Bible's history. This is real people. This is a real gospel. This is a real nation. The, the Caesars are, was a real man. These Jews were real people. This is, this, Paul's a real guy. This really happened. And so it happened this way. So the Bible instead says, many disbelieved Paul. And then quotes a very damning prophecy here from the Old Testament book of Isaiah as they're leaving. And the prophecy has to do about not perceiving, um, seeing but not perceiving, hearing but not understanding, and how, how their hearts were dull. And, and so Acts in part then, this is, why, this is why Acts maybe ends like you wouldn't expect it to. Acts ends in part with a dire warning. Uh, but again, the warning's not quite what you might think. And so think about exactly what's happening here, what, what he's choosing to say to them, and what he's not saying. And so what I mean by this is, the issue in Paul quoting from Isaiah 6, and inside the Jews themselves, is not immorality. That's not the issue. The issue's not immorality or sin, but disbelief in Jesus. That's the issue. Though disbelief is a type of sin, so there obviously is some overlap here, but note that here it's the hardened heart towards the gospel that keeps people unsaved. So Paul's angst over the Jews when they're disbelieving is that they're not believing in Jesus' death and resurrection as predicted and forecasted in the Old Testament. And so there's actually a lot of good news for us. There's kind of two sides of the coin. There's the good news side and then the warning side for us. Think of like one coin. The, the good news side is that in light of all of this, it, it, it reminds us the ultimate point of Christianity is not how good or bad you are, but whether or not you believe in Jesus. That's the issue. Is your heart hard, hardened um, towards the gospel? Is it like, unwilling to accept the idea of grace. That's the crux. That's the issue. Did Jesus die on a cross for our sins and rise again? Do we believe? Some believe are believing that from Paul, literally, right? And some are rejecting it. That's what's dividing people. It's not all the good people over here and all the bad people. It's amongst the, the sea of bad people because they're all bad and evil. Some are believing and some are not. 
This prophecy does not have to do with morality. It has to do with, is your heart hard or soft? Are you wanting to be healed from your sins or not? Do you guys see that? This is, incru- this is crucial to see for us as well. If you're not a Christian yet to see this, if you are a Christian yet uh, to see this as well, because that's the warning side. When, when it comes to Jesus' grace, the warning side, even for those of you who are already Christians like myself, for us, the warning here is not simply to pursue what is good and to abstain from evil because that's not enough. Non-Christians every day abstain from evil things. Non-Christians every day do what is good, but that doesn't make them Christian. That's not enough. That's not the crux. That's not the issue here. The warning is, do not let sin harden your hearts towards the gospel. That's what sin can do. Not sin in and of itself, but sin that would harden your heart towards the saving acts of God in the world. Hebrews, uh, in the New Testament, Hebrews 3 talks in these very, very similar terms towards the church, towards Christians. It says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original faith firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And who is the voice of God? Who is that? Jesus. He is the word of God. If you hear Christ, do not harden your hearts. Don't let sin harden your hearts towards the voice of Jesus, who is saying, I am bleeding for you. Believe that I've substituted myself for you, that I love you in that capacity. Put your faith in me, and you'll be saved. So, This is important because that's, so the worst that sin can do is to lead us away from Jesus. It's not just that, you know, sin might taste better than the gospel, but that it would harden our hearts towards Jesus. So we just give up. So we might start to believe his grace isn't sufficient or that grace doesn't work. It's not working, whatever that means. It's not that sin, this is another way to say this. It's not that sin keeps us from Jesus. How do we know that? How do we know the issue is not that sin itself keeps us from Jesus as a Christian? We know that because Jesus destroyed our sin on the cross. He forgave us the the entirety of our sin through his shed blood. God forgave us through his son's substitution. So it's not sin that keeps us, but it's when sin hardens our heart towards the gospel and towards grace. I mean... Think of the types of people that are hearing this as well. These are Jews. These are law keepers. They're Ten Commandment observers. They're religious. So turning from great, they are, in a way, what Paul is saying here by quoting Isaiah 6, not all of them are doing this, but the ones that are disbelieving, they are turning from grace in the face of their own self-righteousness and self-perceived goodness. And so it's not just sin, but it's our own good works that can harden us to the idea of grace as well. So the question is, is, I mean, to pull right from this, these are strong words. Is your heart dull towards Jesus Christ? And, I mean, seriously think about this. It it will, for all of us, this will be true at, at some point in our life, to varying degrees of severity. But if this is especially true for you today, Is your heart 
dull towards Jesus? Are your eyes sleepy towards the gospel? And, and if that's the case, I, this, this is a sermon's worth of response to this, so please understand that. But I would say this just uh, to kind of close this section out is uh, to quote from first Isaiah or from Ephesians 5:14, "Wake up, O sleeper, and arise from the dead." And then believe afresh that your dull heart, for your dull heart, Jesus' heart was grieved, broken, and pierced on the cross. And then don't let your sins or your good deeds harden or bore you to grace. Or to use that uh, language I used a couple of weeks ago, from, from, got this from someone else, but inoculate you like, uh, to the disease of Christianity. Like don't allow a little bit of dead Christianity virus to get inside you where you're not captivated by the fact that, that God spent so much to save you. So if your heart is dull, I mean, this is, we could talk all day about this, but this is what I would say is snap out of it. Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and believe afresh that for your and my dull hearts, Jesus' heart was grieved, pierced, crushed, broken on that cross. Uh, I, I like that idea we sang about before of his body being tear-drenched. Then don't let your sins or your good deeds, because it can come from both sides. Sin can harden us. It can taste better than Jesus. Um, it, can, it can wrongly make us think that grace isn't working because we're still stuck in this sin and we wrongly twist the gospel around that kind of thing. Or it's our good deeds. Why would I need a bloodied son of God to die in a cursed man or on a tree when I'm a pretty good person? And the answer is you don't need him if you're a pretty good person. You don't. Do you see the danger? This is why the Bible and Jesus himself lovingly holds out our sin and says, it is your worst nightmare times a million. It's way worse than you and I think it is. And that's why the cross was way worse than you and I would write it into history if it were up to us. We would never tell this story. This is the worst of things. The cross is the worst of things. Healing, the worst of things in here. That's why the relationship to see there is, is so important. Otherwise, we will discard it. Like these Jews are hearing about grace, they're discarding it. Why would they need it if they're law keepers? Why would they need it if they're moral Why would they need it if, at the core, they are good people? All right, so let's, let's move on from that, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about the solution here. The last two verses, he lived there two whole years, Paul did, in Rome at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom and, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, period, the end of the book. It's a great ending, isn't it? So let's talk about this uh, from a couple of angles here. So, um, oh yeah, I put here. And the book ends with, Trump roll please, house arrest, you know. It's a little odd. Uh, the, let's talk about this book from two perspectives. So one is the human side, the other is the, the divine side. This is our last section. Um, but the human side is, is addressing the idea that it tells us something about ourselves and Christian ministry. So when we contrast this with how the book began, this is a literary device called inclusio. It's not kind of like textbook inclusio. It's not like repetitious. But the idea like when you bookend a story, 
Um, Matthew's a good example of this, the book of Matthew, where it starts with uh, the, the, the manger, where Jesus' name is Emmanuel, and it says uh, his name will be Emmanuel, which, me, which means God with us. At the end of Matthew, it says uh, that when Jesus ascends, he says, I will be with you to the end of the age. So the book ended with a saying that's called inclusio, all right? Acts kind of has that as well, but in sort of a contrasting way. Like, if you think about how Acts began with Jesus himself ascending to heaven in glory, with the Holy Spirit descending upon the believers' heads in Jerusalem at the, the festival of Pentecost, thousands of Jews converting to Christianity, the lame are miraculously healed, later the dead are even raised, and then how does it end? With a bang, right? Not really. Not really, not really at all. It depends on your definition of bang, I guess. But, um, but Jesus here, or sorry, Paul in house arrest for a couple of years, sharing the gospel over coffee with an ankle monitor on. That's basically how it ends. And there's so much we could say about this. You know, we could, here's a few things. Uh, they're all sermons, so I'll just kind of mention them here. But we could talk about how God is the God of the extraordinary and the ordinary, the God of Pentecost and house arrest. He's the God of both. So think about that, Christian, in your life, because you will probably have both and maybe even erring on the side of the mundane or the ordinary, but God is the God of that as well. That means relatedly to how all things, even the mundane, are sacred. We could talk about how God uses suffering for good. In fact, in Philippians 1, which is one of the letters he wrote in Rome right here, he's about to write Philippians right here in Acts 28. He's about to write it to the Philippian church. That's when he said, what has happened to me, church, has really served to my imprisonment, my suffering has served to advance the gospel because now that I'm here, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. This is Philippians 1. And the brothers, other Christians, are being emboldened to share the gospel more freely. So how can we say that this wasn't a good thing? Paul suffering, Paul almost dying a hundred times, Paul being shipwrecked and snake-bitten, and Paul coming here in house arrest and not having freedoms, that is being used for good. If it didn't happen, people wouldn't be saved. Philippians probably wouldn't have been written, or it would have looked differently. So we could talk about that too, but here's one of the big things, is just seeing this simple movement in the book from the physically miraculous to the spiritually miraculous. Uh, John Chrysostom, who is one of the early church fathers in the fourth century, says about this verse, about how Acts ends, he says, it is not with miracles, but with the gospel that Paul silences them. At the end of Acts, it's not with miracles, but it's about, or it's with the gospel itself, the words of the gospel that he silences the Jews, and then I think inferred saves some as well. This doesn't mean miracles don't exist anymore, but it reminds us that physical miracles never save people. The, I mean, physical like healings, like physical miracles that many of which we've seen in Acts, never ever save people from their sins. They don't make people Christian. That's never ever happened once. It might intrigue people and draw people close to the threshold. But that's not what experiencing that or being the channel of that isn't what it means ultimately to, to be a Christian. It's as if Acts is saying here at the end that, that the sharing of the words of the gospel, in a way, is the better miracle, isn't it? 
that conversion is the greatest of miracles. Sinners coming to faith in Jesus Christ, which can only happen if God intends it. That's why we call it a miracle, because if that wasn't the case, it wouldn't be a miracle. It would be natural. But if God is the one who saves us, if he softens our heart to believe, then it's miraculous. And it is. It's much greater than the healing of cripples. It's much more wondrous than the Spirit visibly falling on people's heads, helping them to speak in other languages, as we saw in Acts 2. And the fact that the book ends here in this very anticlimactic way suggests to us that the story goes on in, in a very Acts 29 kind of way. And this same relationship between the physical and the spiritually miraculous exists today too, like in, in, our, in our day and, and around the world. It can look a little bit different, but generally it's true. So what I, what I mean is this. So although we speak about Christians in general here, so although we pray for physical miracles, we don't need them. We have the gospel. We have the greater miracle. We're saved. Though we thank God for the extraordinary, we also see him in the mundane. Though we hope for comfort, we see him use our pain for good. And we're not characterized necessarily by loudly pursuing God as much as we are by believing in the fact that he has perfectly pursued us. Because see, Acts, 20, not, Acts 28 tells us that gospel-centered living isn't loud because the cross was loud enough. It frees us to be normal and quiet because we're not saved by the works of our hands or shouts of our voice, but by the grace of Jesus Christ. couple thoughts on the divine side here. The divine side, as if it tells us about Jesus. That's what we mean by this. And this is the most appropriate final word we can give to Acts because Acts is, Acts at the end of the day is not a book about church planting or leadership or ministry practice. Even though those things are in the book, it's not about that. So if that's your perspective on Acts, I would just say, please change that perspective. Uh, the, the, a lot of times Christians, when they try to understand all the books and how they fit together, they topically label them. Like, Nehemiah is the book on leadership, and Acts is the book on church planting, and 1 John's the book on assurance of salvation. And it's like, holy cow. Like, sort of, you know. Oh, Revelation's the book about the future. And it's like, kinda, but they, I mean, a lot of books are about, about those things. But, but here's what they are really all about. They're really all about Jesus. And yes, some of those components of those things of what I mentioned are sprinkled in and we can glean and learn from them but but they're all about christ and so here jesus is all right one last time not that we're done preaching christ here as a church one last time in the book of acts though all right savor this this is what we need to see when we read about him we think we're reading about paul but we're actually reading about him the one who's in paul in this very moment in Acts 28, 17, it says, Paul called together the Jews, and they gathered to him. And in verse 30, he welcomed all who came to him. Just like Jesus, same language in Mark 3, called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. You see here how Paul is resembling the one who calls out to us to come to him and find rest. How, how Paul here in Acts 28 is not a, a hermit, 
who is bothered by spiritual pilgrims, but he's a pastor who intends to save people and calls out to them and wants to be with them. See, like Paul here to the Romans, Jesus calls those he wants. And and here's the good news. Because Jesus is calling out to you through my audible voice right now, saying, I love you. Believe in me. Which means, if you do, if you kind of reverse the whole thing here in Mark 3, he wants you. He wants to be with you. He's calling out only to those he wants. He wants us. He wants us to hear his voice and not to harden our hearts. He wants to give us rest. He wants to save us from our sins. And and adding on to this, like Paul, Jesus is a rejected, imprisoned, and pained Savior. You know, think about in in the light of all that Paul has gone through, access for these faraway people from God is made. Isn't that great? Something they didn't work for or deserve, but now paved through Paul's suffering. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 11, 24-28, Paul's testimony to the Corinthian church. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, speaking of flogging. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. And so here, in Paul's testimony, is the gospel. Jesus suffered like this for you and me, but much worse than this. See, this is why it was so hard for Paul to get to Rome in the first place. This is why he suffered so much for his churches that he planted. This is why he lists it out in the Bible. So that we would know yet again the depth of the riches of the love of Jesus Christ for you and me. Because Jesus calls out to us in this passage. He says, I have labored. I have toiled for you. I have gone without sleep for you. If you know the story of Christ, think about how this language applies to him in the gospel accounts. I have faced danger upon danger in the sea and from the hands of the Jews and the hands of the Gentiles, ultimately unto death. Because I, Jesus is saying, I and my Father were, bottom line, concerned for you. We saw you were in danger. So Jesus is saying, I took danger upon myself that you might be saved. That's what the story of Paul shows us. It points back to Christ. Because what Paul went through was severe, but how much more Christ's endangered existence for us. This is also why it says here that Paul lived in Rome at his own expense because Paul wasn't asking for payment from these people, right? He wasn't asking for help from them. 
He wasn't even asking for reciprocation on any level. And the gospel says to us, so it is with Christ. You know, this means that for us, Jesus isn't asking anything from us upon return. He's not like saving us 50% and then saying, now, you're welcome. Now, could you fill in the gaps? That's not the gospel. Christ doesn't save you, you guys, and ask you for anything. Please believe this. Do you see the love in it? And how it would not be loving if he did? I mean, if it helps, just think about it the other way around. But like Paul lived at his own expense, Jesus doesn't ask us to pay him back with our good works. But instead that he expended himself on the cross for us. He literally paid it all right there. And so, a couple final words then just about Acts. Um, They're kind of off of this last gospel line is the last two words of the book are without hindrance. And so I have just two things I want to, I I'll just read this, but two things I want to encourage you guys with, with a do not take lightly kind of introduction. All right, and the first one starts here. Don't take lightly that this gospel started on a street corner in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and has made it here. And I mean here on the corner of 41st Avenue and 42nd Street in Minneapolis, Minnesota today. Do not take that lightly. Because it means that God must really care about us. He must want to be with us because he's calling out to us. And his gospel has made it here. And then don't take lightly the call to love the church because Jesus is here. This is where he's gathered when we're gathered together. We are his body. Don't take lightly the call to build up and mature and grow the the church with use of your God-given spiritual gifts. Don't take lightly the call to evangelize the lost because for this part of the world, we are his witnesses here. We are his ambassadors. We are his prophets. Testifying to what we have seen and heard, to what we know is true, the gospel of the death and resurrection of the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you that we are, it is actually a miracle that we are here right now with translated Bibles talking about Jesus Christ in a gospel way. That only happens if you intend it. And it wouldn't have happened if you didn't allow your gospel to get here in the first place. And so, in light of what Acts 1.8 said, the very beginning of Acts, that Jesus to your disciples, you said, you are my witnesses here in Jerusalem, then out to Judea, the province, then up towards Samaria, then out from there to the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth. Rome was the ends of the earth. America is the ends of the earth. We, as individuals in this room, we are ends of the earth, distant from God's sinners that you had to come to to chase us down, to call us to be with yourself, to give us rest, to forgive us, to cover us with your blood. Not to teach us how to have our best life now, not to give us advice for living, but to die in our place, the worst death ever died. That is the gospel. Help us to believe, soften our hearts to grace, uh, and protect us, protect our our dull hearts. Um, Give us new hearts, but protect our hearts from becoming dull towards the God, bored with 
and dull towards the gospel, which is the warning that Acts ends with. That is the threat. Not sin, even though it kind of is, but that sin would harden our hearts, that our hearts would be hard towards the gospel, and that we would walk away from you, God. So um, help us as a church to stay the course, even though we might see Christians abandoning the faith every day. We have seen that here in our church. We have seen it. It's not theory. It's a sobering reality that people are walking away. Uh, God, may that not be us. Make your gospel sweet and beautiful, sufficient. May we decide to know nothing except Christ and him crucified here for the glory of God. Amen.